All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, tonight, tonight we are going to be doing the truth. Uh, actually, the truth with a question mark, which is much easier than the truth without a question mark. So we're going to be doing truth question mark. But just a reminder: on those two more of these, 16A and 16B, um, and then. Um, but on the 19th, Thursday, I'll be starting the new series on the Germans, which will be once a month at Fort Warden uh, in the Commons on Thursday at 6. It'll be a little longer, a little more in-depth, and it'll be focusing mostly on individual philosophers. And because if you're going to do the Germans, you have to start with Kant, so I'll start with Kant. Uh, so be forewarned. Uh, you know, it's, it's rated something. Rated only acceptable to people who can take Kant. Um, so, all right. So tonight, the truth. So the problem here, if, if you've been paying attention as you've been moving along, is, is multiple. The Enlightenment, to a certain extent the Renaissance, but certainly the Enlightenment, undermined all of the traditional sources of truth. So if you look at theological arguments, everybody agrees the truth comes from God, or the gods, or the sacred book, or the sacred people. Whoever has the authority, and then you argue about what that means. So it doesn't mean you stop arguing. It just means you all agree on what you're arguing about. And that's a, that's a very important distinction, as we'll see. Another source, of course, during the Renaissance uh, was classical philosophers. You get the same thing in China, where they just decide that Confucius was right. And so you, again, what Confucius meant exactly, eh. but if you can figure out what he meant, then you know you're okay. So you argue about what Confucius and a couple other thinkers meant, and so then you know how to get to the truth. Also, you had to appeal to political authority, generally kings, emperors, you know, various forms of a sacred, generally, political authority. This is why kings and emperors and pashas are all, almost always associated with religious figures and had very serious religious uh, duties, because this demonstrated their connection with the divine, which is your connection with the truth. And so we know the king is right. Why? Divine right of kings. The king also happens to be the high priest in some instances. Depends on where you are in world history. But the king is divine in his authority to deliver the truth, if for no other reason than the king's really, really powerful. Oh, there's a few more chairs in back, too. There's, there's more chairs in back, hopefully. Um, I think so. So, you know, so that makes it okay. We know where the truth comes from. Um, another source of truth was, you know, the classics with Aristotelian logic. So you applied logic to understanding the Bible, or you tried logic to the legal structure underneath the king. What the Enlightenment does is it blows up each and every one of those possibilities. It says, no, also the Protestant Reformation, by the way. The Protestant Reformation says, well, you have direct access to God, so everybody can have their own truth about God. It's not the same thing as doing away with God, but it's really close to that. The Protestant Reformation says, no, people have to be free to question. And of course, the big questions are, where does truth come from? And then when I talked about empiricism last time, the really key thing about empiricism is it's not that interested in truth. It's much more interested in functionality, which is, so it, it talks all, all about the limits of truth, what you can and can't know, 
and is fine with that. It doesn't try to fix that, it just says that's fine, which is another huge challenge to authority. The other part of this, or another part of this, was the success of the scientific method, the success of empirical and technological change meant people started going, oh, maybe empiricism really does know something. But what it knows is that it doesn't care whether or not it knows things in the traditional metaphysical absolute sense of truth. And so it was this big problem that what seemed to be winning was not a new mode of thinking that gave you access to absolute truth, but a mode of thinking that really wasn't focused on that question. And this is a huge challenge. And so what I want to explore tonight is so what happens is you get this explosion and you get the whole series of attempts to try to find the truth again. And, and that sort of defines where we are more or less today. If you want to understand where we are today, it's we're in this knockdown, drag out, multi-century battle to try to figure out where truth is. And so we don't agree on any of that, but if you understand that that's what lots and lots of people are trying to do, it will help you understand both the philosophical and cultural dynamic in which we operate today. But it's one that started a while ago. And so there's a quote here, sort of a long quote, I won't read the whole thing, but it's from Thoreau. This is another problem. So Thoreau and Walden says, in the morning I bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonical philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita since whose composition years of the gods have elapsed and in comparison with which our modern world and its literature seem puny and trivial. Now it's important to note that another challenge to uh, Western philosophical thinking and the truth was the importation of the classical works of literature from all over the world. And the problem when you start getting things like the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads is, is all of the literate people who are encountering them were like, wow. This is really good. In fact, it's so good, it might be better than anything we have, right? And so this is a big challenge. What do you do when you get the Confucius classics? What do you do when you get the Tao or the Tao Te Ching? What, you know, intellectually, you can just say, oh, well, those are ignorant people from backwards countries, but most literate, sensitive people are going, holy cow, this is really good, right? This is, this is spectacularly powerful. The Bhagavad Gita is a classic of world literature because, oh my God, it's incredible. Um, you know, and so you start getting all these inputs from totally different cultures. It's one thing to import the Greeks and the Romans. It's another thing when, when you get the Ramayana. It's, an, it's another thing when you get you know, some of the classics from Persia. Uh, so famously, Goethe started learning Persian when he was like 75 years old because he was so impressed with the Persian literature that was being translated into German at the time that he thought, well, what have I been doing? I've been wasting my life on this German stuff. The Persians have it. So he started, I think it was like 72, he started learning Persian because he's like, this is poetry. These are the masters. And so he wrote a divan, a, a collection based on Persian, he was like 76 or something, right at the end of his life, but it just blew him away. And so notice all of your cultural assumptions now are getting attacked from, from every direction. Oh, we're the leading culture in the world until you encounter these other cultures. Uh, you know, we, we've got all this certainty about God until A, you encounter all these other systems of gods, and you encounter people who are like not that interested in God, and you have empiricism which says we don't care whether or not there is a God. We care whether or not the plane flies. 
right? I mean, that sort of, if God makes a plane fly, that's fine, but, you know, it doesn't fly. And so in every way, in every dynamic, the old structures of knowledge are being undermined. Also, communal values. Most people, not that literate, most people are not reading the Bhagavad Gita. You know, very few. Even in India, very few people are reading the Bhagavad Gita, right, at this time, because not many people are literate in the world. So most people are actually driving their values from communal living, from where they are, their location, their village, their small town, um, their peasant groups. But this is getting overthrown. Enclosure movement in England, land tenure reform in France, the, uh, you know, the, during the revolution, they take most of the church lands from the church, which means all, these all have peasant groups associated with them, and it's all of a sudden all the land is gone. So their whole relationship to the land and their culture and their village, and their, it's, it's all just blowing up. So even small-scale communal values, forget all the high-flown intellectual amazing stuff, but the small-scale communal values are actually being disrupted, which is basically where we are today. And so what this generated was a whole series, not one which we'll start going through, but a whole series of attempts to say, all right, then where is truth? Where can we find truth if we can't if, if where we've traditionally found it, again, all these different locations, have been taken out from underneath us. And so one place, and this is the first thing that I have here, is a page from the Pincipia Mathematica. This is Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead's stupendous attempt to absolutely and perfectly rigorously found mathematics. It's a little, a little more complicated than that, but that's basically what they're trying to do. And the idea not original with them, by the way. Hilbert, Piano, other people came up with this idea as well. It was a project to say, if we can prove with absolute certainty the rules of mathematics, then anything we derive in mathematics we know must be true. It was an attempt to get absolute truth. Not from God, not from the king, not from the political system, not from our community but from the pure, absolute essence of human capacity to reason as expressed in mathematics. And this foundered on a few rocky shoals. It seemed like a reasonable thing. Math works. Actually, no one knows exactly why math works. There's just a whole series on why math works. But anyway, math has this incredible power. And so they thought, oh, we'll turn there for truth. Um, and, and Hilbert's part of the project sort of founded on Gödel. So if you've ever heard of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, it's actually two different theorems, but we'll just call it his incompleteness theorem. Um, what it says is no, roughly, no system of mathematics can ever be totally knowledgeable about what's within that system. You can express something that you can't decide about. You can make a legal expression and you can't know whether that expression is true or false in any system. And he proved that for all possible systems, which is a major intellectual achievement, but also a bit undercuts the whole project of mathematical certainty. It's not what people wanted. They weren't waiting in line going, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could undercut our belief in mathematics? That would be spectacular. <laughs> right? This wasn't, no, but, but Gödel demonstrated this. Um, in fact, so convincingly that it didn't take very long for people to go, oh, damn. 
Uh, Russell, on the other hand, encountered Wittgenstein, so Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, a notoriously in, hard to understand thinker, but, but some of the stuff she said very clear. And here's a quote from him that'll let you know what's going on. Um, he says, uh, the aim of the book is to set the limits to thought, or rather not to thought, but to the expression of thought. For in order to be able to set a limit to thought, we should have to find both sides of the limit of thinkable, i.e. we would have to be able to think what cannot be thought. It will therefore only be in language that the limit can be set, and that lies on the other side of the limit will simply be nonsense. This is from the hilarious tractus uh, philological by Wittgenstein. He's a famously funny writer. No, uh, it, it famously not funny writer, very dry writer. But he demonstrated to, to Russell, and sort of broke Russell's heart, by the way, because he had really set his mind on perfecting mathematics. And Wittgenstein just demonstrated to him that his system was flawed. And it was flawed in a way that Russell became convinced was not fixable, because he was right, it was not fixable. And, and Russell basically stopped doing serious thinking at that point. That was sort of the end of his serious thinking, um, which he himself admitted later that he just sort of was so depressed by this. And so one attempt to like really look at mathematics for absolute certainty fell apart pretty quickly. Hilbert had to change what he counted as being certain, and that sort of, that project is still ongoing, but even Hilbert was upset a little bit, and he's like, okay, we can switch it and try again. Um, Russell just abandoned the whole project and just switched over to doing sort of popular philosophy, I guess I shouldn't throw rocks at that, um, and, and sort of third-rate politics, I guess. You know, he, was, he, he, he just moved away from serious thinking, I guess you, you could argue. Um, which, he, again, he himself said this, so it's not like me, me imputing that to him. He, he recognized this, as did his friends. Um, and, and, and what did you leave with? Where are you left? You're left with this quote from Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein changes the question from what is truth to what, is it, what do we mean when we say the word truth? Now, now this launches the whole sort of linguistic movement in philosophy. Um, an unfortunate and terrifyingly dull movement, but necessary to understand, Quine, et cetera, lots of people here important. But the basic idea is they say, well, truth isn't all that available. Let's see what happens when we think about language. Um, and that, it, it's, it's, notice they just abandon the whole question. So when you say, hey, let's not talk about truth, let's talk about what we mean when we say truth, well, you've sort of given up. Right? It's like if, if, you're, if, you're, if your house roof is leaking and you say, let's not fix the roof, let's talk about what we mean by leak. <laughs> you, see, you see how that's different? It's really a different sort of question. And, and it's not that helpful for stopping the leak, right? It's, it doesn't, you could redefine it as sort of uh, pleasantly humid, I guess, you know, but it's probably still just leaking. Um, that's... Ah, but this is, this is the Wittgenstein program. Important insights, powerful insights that he made about the limits and, and, and capacities of language, but it certainly didn't help move the frontiers of truth. If anything, it just messed them up because it showed that the way we use language is hugely, hugely problematic. Um, and so what started out as another attempt at truth sort of founders and then launches the whole linguistic philosophical movement, which sort of makes everything even more confusing and further away from truth again. Uh, second thing, or an, another thing people tried to do, 
is they launch what I think is hilarious. This got cut off. I'm not sure why, what I did wrong with the printer there. But it's in 1893, the World Parliament of Religion in Chicago was launched. Um, now, this to us in the modern world seems reasonable. So World's Fair, or sort of a vaguely World's Fair uh, in Chicago. And part of it, they said, let's have a World Congress of Religious Leaders. It's never happened before. The reason this has never happened before is in the history of the world, when two religious leaders met, they were killing each other, or their soldiers were killing the soldiers of the other people. This was called religion. Uh, and what it meant was, I'm right and you're wrong, or you're right and I'm wrong, depending on whose soldiers win, whose culture becomes dominant. What happens when you have a congress of world religious leaders to talk about their religions it means you have no idea what the hell is going on anymore. You see how that's the, the, just the concept that here we have 20 different people from all over the world with totally different backgrounds. As an intellectual cultural phenomenon, it's great. If you've been grounding your belief system in, in a religious philosophy, it's horrifying. Because what you've done is you've said, the Jains and the Hindus and the Zen Buddhists and the Mayahana Buddhists and the Swedenborgians, who actually were the hosts of the event, which is hilarious, uh, and, and, and the Protestants and the Catholics are all pretty much equal. It's all samey samey. Choose. Take your pick. Knock yourself out. It's all good. Well, yeah. See, that's not what we used to mean by religious truth. The Catholic Church did not spend 800 years saying, oh, it's all good, free love, knock yourselves out, right? And, and, and the other religions didn't do this either. The Zoroastrians weren't all that free love. Hinduism has, has been a culturally dominant force by sort of mixing intolerance with total acceptance. I did a lecture on Hinduism. You've got to get your mind around it, but it really just opens it up to everything and says, no, it's all us, which is genius. It's a great chess move. Um, but, but, you know, that... But Zen and then the Mahayana Buddhists are there and they're like, oh, this is all, you know, so what the hell is going on? And we're used to this notion. That shows how far we are from concepts of truth. We're used to the idea of, oh, we should have everybody get together and just agree about things. But, but notice that means they're what, it, either truth then becomes democratic, which you can see the problems there, where do you have all the religious leaders vote and then whoever wins is like, oh, the Sikhs won, great, they're, they're true. Do you have a rotating presidency? Right, so the religion that's true changes on a periodic cycle? Uh, do you put it to a vote, in which case it would be Hinduism all the time, because they have the most people? Um, you know, that's, I don't, I don't it, see, it makes no sense if you're trying to understand truth in a capital T transcendental sense. Um, and, and people respond to this very strongly, by the way. If you want to understand what Dostoevsky is all about, his prime directive was a resistance to this sort of cultural phenomenon, which we just take for granted. He hated modern ethics for this very reason. He thought it was the most horrifying thing ever. Um, and if you look at the notes from the underground, which is just, if you haven't read notes of the underground, by the way, just leave now and go read it. It's just spectacular. But uh, what a wonderful, depressing, horrifying, great work. It's short, though. It's short. Um, so it, it has that redeeming feature. Uh, and he says in there, uh, I think this is the second chapter. I forget. 
Um, it's not at the very beginning. Well, once it's been proved to you that you're descended from an ape, it's no use pulling a face, just accept it. Once they've proved to you that a single drop of your own fat must be dearer to you than a hundred thousand of your fellow human beings, and consequently that all so-called virtues and duties are nothing but ravings and prejudices, then accept that too, because there's nothing to be done. Right? And, and this is Dostoevsky's take on it. He writes about this endlessly in The Idiot, in the Brothers Karamazov, uh, famously, uh, Crime and Punishment, of course. So in Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov, the main character, just says, hey, if there's no ethics, if there's no rules, if there's no God telling me right or wrong, why can't I just kill this awful old uh, sort of pawn broker and get some money that I need because I'm a decent, hardworking, intelligent person and I need that money and she's nothing, so I'll just kill her and take it. And then why shouldn't I do that? If there's no rules, if there's no absolute truth, then isn't everything permissible? And, and, and of course, Dostoevsky's like, no. The whole point of crime management is to go, no, as the same thing as the Brothers Karamazov, no. The gambler, the idiot, I mean, it's just, this is what his works are saying. But we're still not, we, we're, we're confused, we don't understand yet. Um, his answers, by the way, if you read his novels, are at the end. They always generally come at the end, and they make no sense to us. Um, because he's so, he believes so furiously that when he tells you what he believes, you're like, what? <laughs> his counter-arguments are so strong that it's, sort of, it's, it's a really interesting effect that he achieves. But he was deeply, deeply religious. I mean, like, incredibly religious. And... That's what he was trying to communicate, but I'm never sure he achieved it that well uh, on, on that front. But, it's, but that was the challenge. How do you respond to this? Where do you find truth? And another place that people tried to open up is they say, okay, we've opened it up to the people. Um, but of course, the problem here, as with the rotating presidencies of the religion, is people believe different things at different times under different impulses. And so can we call any accumulation of that as true? Is that what makes truth? And it's like, oh. And, and what does it mean? Like one of the truths he points out there is, of course, the Darwinian notion of, oh, you've descended from an ape, the classic Darwinian problem. Well, it's true, but is it true in a transcendental state? And what would that mean? So two of the ways we've tried to move on from this, sort of, and struggling, um, and, and that, we, that we try to work this out, one is called sort of the, the correspondence theory. Now this is, uh, this theory has been around for a long time. Aristotle had something, something like this. And it's generally what we mean when we say true, but we don't know that that's what we mean. And the correspondence theory says, as Aristotle put it, that which is, is, and that which is not, is not. So if I say, we are here in a barn, this seems pretty true because it corresponds with our experience of the world, right? It's like, okay, we're in the barn, here we go, good. Um, if I say, we are not in Kansas, similarly, great, this all works for us. The only problem with the correspondence theory is it doesn't work at all. Uh, <laughs> this is the, it seems good, and it's good from an empirical level. This is where empiricism comes in. Empiricism is more or less a correspondence theory run mad, but they're like, that's good enough for us. But what if I say something like, oh, um, look, for instance, I said, we are not in Kansas, which is true, but what is that, how does a not being work? 
right? How, how do we functionally understand something that actually, what we're saying is that it does not exist, and that's the foundation of our truth. This turns out to be hugely problematical, right? That, that saying, okay, we're not in Kansas, we're not in the moon, we're not flying. These are all sort of true, but they're also counterfactual. And generally, you don't want to base your truths on counterfactuality and things you can't experience. So we're not directly experiencing that we're not in Kansas. We're directly experiencing that we are in a barn from which we derive that we're not in Kansas. See, it seems really good until you think about it for like five minutes, and then you realize, wow, correspondence theory is troubling. Um, and and, and they've, it, it's really been worked on, it's still worked on, um, but it turns out to be very limited. Also, you may have experienced where you've been deceived about what you're experiencing. Sometimes our senses mislead us, and we go, oh, I was wrong about my understanding of the world. If you can be wrong about your understanding of the world, then the correspondence theory is only so good. Pretty good, pretty functional, and basically that's what we do. You know, if, if you're driving your car and you go, I have gas, and the car runs, good. Your correspondence theory is functioning. If it turns out that your gas gauge is broke and all of a sudden your car comes to a halt, then you go, oh, I'm, I'm out of gas. Okay, now your correspondence theory is working again, but notice you've had to change it dramatically because you actually were misperceiving the reality of the world even though it seemed to correspond well. This happens all the time. It doesn't throw us off because, again, it, we're not trying to get the transcendental truth, we're trying to get to work or the grocery store or something, right? And so with little t truth, my car is running good. But big t truth, eh, correspondence theory falls off a, off a cliff. And there's also this other one we try to work with, which is the coherence theory, which is sort of, I've got some rules, and if the world is in line with those rules, then good. So it's coherent in the sense of the propositions, if you will, that I've come up with, uh, express and help me comprehend the world. So um, things like, oh, if I stay up really late and I drink way too much coffee, I don't sleep well. And so you run that experiment a couple of times and you find out, yeah, that my, my, my rules correspond very well with what, ha I mean, uh, or is coherent with the outcome. It's sort of more predictive, if you will. It's a finite set of rules that help you comprehend the world. Um, but of course, you, you quickly find out, of, as we all do, because we all have these rules of thumb that we try to guide our activities by, that they often fail. If they fail too often, we throw them off. But they don't fail so often, and you know, we keep them. So sometimes you're so exhausted, you've been working so hard, that it doesn't matter how much coffee you drink, you just pass out, right? And, so, and you go, that, that's just the way it is. So it's not every time, but it's most of the time. And again, functionally, we're happy. Transcendental truth-wise, we're not happy. And so we've been thrown into this world where we really just don't know how to, where to access truth beyond sort of functional truth. To the point that now we're totally suspicious of it. If, if you go, oh, you know, there's this uh, God I believe in, well, people say, well, I've got this other God, and people say, well, we don't like your God, and there's a whole critique of religion that's on the shelf. You can go get it at Walmart, bulk. And even people who believe in religion know the critique. 
which is a really different place to be in the world than it used to be. Um, if you believe in the divine right of kings, this is not the way people used to believe in the divine right of kings. This, the suspiciousness of power, the, 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 the response to go, what's in it for them? Oh, they're just making money. Oh, they're just doing it to advance their own ego. Right? We have this innate suspicion that, I mean, if you read the old texts and letters, it's not that they didn't know the kings were bastards and all this. They, people, people knew this, but it was mixed with this fundamental belief that as did the king, so did the country. That there was this sort of ineffable power about them that made everything good. And I was trying to think of an example of this, and I, and I think it's GDP, which has now fallen in its own hard, hard, hard life. But for about the last 30 years, the answer to any question was, well, it'll help the GDP. And everyone was, ooh, that must be good. Because the GDP is this magic force that makes everything good. Uh, now people are becoming suspicious of the GDP. It is no longer the magic force that makes everything good. And once that happens, it loses the power of conviction. Once people start criticizing the king, not as, oh, this was wrong, that was bad, that was stupid, but that he does not have divinity, that he does not embody a supernatural force that, that suspends our world, now you've lost it. And of course, we, we just basically don't accept that anymore as a culture, or, or most people don't. We're automatically critical. It's just, this is, this is from the Enlightenment movement. We just are like, eh, I don't know about that. I don't trust that person. You know, you know that's why we're, we're very suspicious of cults. And then people are always like, ooh, cults are bad. I'm like, well, isn't a cult a small religion? Right, when does, when does a, a, a cult become big enough that it becomes a religion. 100,000 people, 500,000 people, a million? I mean, where does that, where's that line? And by the way, it's not surprising that back to the Swedenborgians, that roughly the time that you're getting the French Revolution, you're getting the Protestant Reformation, is the, the conclusion of that, you start getting a lot of new religions, right? Calvinism, Lutheranism. You get these different moves. Then you get people like Swedenborg, who said he was getting divine revelations from God. Now, see, that's new. You're not supposed to. You're, when, do, when does divine revelation stop? For the longest time, the church said, with the New Testament, that's it, no more divine revelation, no more books for you. <laughs> Which is good, it's long enough. So I'm in favor of that. There's plenty to read as it is. But uh, no, 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 new revelations. The, uh, the Mormons, Jesus Christ, Church of Latter-day Saints. New revelations. Be because we need a new philosophy to help us comprehend the world. But at some point, if you get too many new revelations from too many people all at the same time, people become confused. And then, you, and then you have to battle this out. And by the way, this has happened periodically throughout history. Confucius comes out of the Hundred Schools period in China, where something similar, that the whole structure of authority and belief had broken down. And so all of these schools rose up. Moism, legalism, Confucianism, just the most famous, because the most influential over the long haul, not in his lifetime by any stretch of the imagination, but over the long haul, he sort of won. His school won. Um, but 
The same thing. When authority breaks down, you get all this flowering of different concepts and schools and belief systems. But the problem is when you have that, it's hard to believe in anything in particular because we know that somebody believes something different over there and we know the critiques of all the different schools. And so that sort of is where we are today. And so people keep talking about, oh, you know, what's true? Where do you find truth? What's the foundation of truth? You know, what's the nature of reality? And it's like, yeah, those are great questions. We blew those up about 300 years ago. We sort of blew up the answer to that question or answers in, in the Enlightenment. I mean, that's what the Enlightenment was. It didn't mean to do that. I'm not, I'm not convinced. It was trying to do other things, but the net result of it was to really undercut basically the foundations of all of our most profound beliefs that we had held historically. And, and opened everything up to this universal concept of criticism, which was what the Enlightenment argued for, the ability to think freely and question everything. Great. Now we're screwed, right? <laughs> basically, once you start questioning everything, you're in trouble. Uh, it, 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 you know, that's what you get. You get chaos. You get all of the, the problems that we have. You get David Hilbert, who commits his life as a brilliant, by the way, brilliant mathematician, but just, just first rate, worked with Einstein. I mean, Einstein did the whole thing. I mean, this guy was, was top notch. Um, but what he really wanted to do was defeat it because Gogol saying, yeah, you don't have access to that kind of truth. Not in an absolute sense. Limited sense, yes. Absolute sense, yeah, I don't think you can pull it off. It's going to be always incomplete, which is frustrating if you're a mathematician. For most people, not that frustrating. But for a mathematician, very frustrating. And the, the debate, I mentioned a couple of times ago, the, the Pope coming out and condemning in like the 1890s, like Western liberal democracy, and saying this is a horrifying thing. You can't do it. This is Dostoevsky's critique. He went to Paris during the Paris, the city of lights, the impressionists, as everybody was. Dostoevsky went to Paris and hated it, wrote these scathing letters home about how awful, like how the world has gone totally wrong. This is hell, right? Because it's, these people have no values. They don't, they don't believe in anything. They're just buying fancy clothes. You know, he just hated everything about it. And it's amazing to read because it is from that totally different perspective perspective of somebody who wanted to believe, not want to believe, who did believe. And so, you know, these, this is our fundamental structure. This is, this is the problem that we're facing uh, as, as we go forward. And I want to finish the quote from Thoreau here. And he says on the back, he says, I lay down and go to my well for water, and lo, there I meet the servant of the Brahman, priest of the Brahma, and Vishnu and Indra, who still sits in the temple on the Ganges reading the Vedas or dwells at the root of a tree with a crust and water jug. I meet the servant come to draw water for his master and our buckets, as it were, great together in the same well. The pure Walden water is mingled with the sacred water of the Ganges. So, so this is syncretism, which is to say there's parts of the Bhagavad Gita that he really liked, and so he took those parts and it inspired him and moved him and made him. I mean, it's a beautiful passage. Uh, and, and it evokes many of the images that you'll get. 
in the Mahabharata, and, and the, I don't think he read the Mahabharata. I don't think it was available in English yet, by the way. So, but it's sections from the Mahabharata, but but the Bhagavad Gita in particular. But the books are always. By the way, if you read the Mahabharata, it's huge. It's like 17 volumes. So it's worth a read. Just <laughs> it is. It is. It is really. It's it's astounding. Astoundingly, it's just spectacular. But it's also long and just a wreck. I mean, it's great and a wreck. But wells everywhere in there. People, wives falling in wells, gods in wells. It's wells, well water. I mean, you, you feel how important fresh water was because of so often just what he's saying. The water of the Ganges, the water of life, the drinking water just gets mixed over and over again. And so this is what we generally do now. We've all become syncretic. We, we take a little bit from the imagery of, of the Mahabharata that we love. And we like a little of the Tao Te Ching, so we take a few of those concepts. And we, maybe we like a little of the Theosophy, we take some, and we like the scientific concepts, and so, and we make these sort of stews, and boil them all up, and we go, there, that's sort of functionally good for me. Um, how coherent it is, how much access to absolute truth it gives you, wow. It's really, probably not there, right? It's not that functional in some ways, which is what Thoreau is writing about. Thoreau's only interest he is is his truth. I mean, Thoreau is interested in Thoreau. By, by the way, there's a, famous, there's a famous naturalist, John Burroughs, who wrote about Thoreau saying, no one ever walks so much in nature without ever having seen anything. <laughs> right, because because it, it's so clear that he's 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 out in nature to visit Thoreau, right, and that's the purpose of which is beautiful and amazing and wonderful. But as a naturalist like Burroughs, it's eminently frustrating, right? He's like, but there's birds and there's you know, all that. You know, he just he's like he's always interested in Thoreau, really, um, and that. But that's sort of where we end up going, and of course. That you can, people can see the problem there. If everybody tries to vest their truth in themselves, ooh, this is potential, but yikes, right? Either this is a whole different concept of what we mean by truth, certainly nothing to do with the, the way it used to be, um, or it just becomes a sort of unknowable, isolated, you know, six. 0.7 billion, we had 7 billion people yet, so we have 7 billion truths in the world. How does that function? How, how do we communicate? How do we get anything done if we have 7 billion different truths? Right? And that, I mean, this is, and this is our world. And so what we face is the product of A, the Enlightenment movement, which said question everything, and you have the right to question everything. Almost you have the duty to question everything. Uh, two, in fact, R Roger Shattuck, he was a thinker from the uh, 60s, 50s and 60s, wrote a book called Pandora's Box, where he said, in the ancient world, there were questions you just shouldn't think about. They just said, no, that's, you shouldn't. He said, atomic weapons, that was probably one of them. We probably should have just drawn a line there and said, no. And it's such a weird book to read because it, he's a classical philosopher guy, and he just said the ancient world had this good idea that there's certain things you just shouldn't try to figure out, that are knowledge that's walled. We just hate this idea. We're like, no, we're not going Empir to. Empirical science says, no, we're going to try it out, no matter how stupid or how dangerous or how you know, life-threatening. We're going to go for it, just because. Um, 
But that, that impulse to say, no, 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 let's not think about that. Let's, yeah, no, we're not comfortable. Generally, as a culture, we're not comfortable with that. Um, and, and so we, we are, we're just these isolated monads trying to reach out. The other thing is, historically, most people lived in relatively isolated intellectual environments. And I mean that both in the grand scale, if you're literate and educated, which almost nobody was, for almost all of human history, you're still relatively narrow. But in the cultural sense, if you lived in a region, you had a regional dialect. Your language probably wasn't spoken by more than 200,000 people over a hundred square kilometers or hundred square miles. And then you go to the next valley, often incomprehensible to this valley, even though they're you know, both speaking Italian, they might be mutually incomprehensible dialects. There wasn't 10 languages or 20, there were a thousand. And so your cultural view was very narrow, very restricted, and very orderly because it was all very familiar. And so when I mentioned the Upanishads coming in, or the Persian poets, or the Chinese philosophers, this means that all of a sudden you're not trying to deal with the concepts that you have a cultural grounding in, and a history, and a familiarity to address. Now you're reading a work from a society about which you know almost nothing, you have no direct contact with it, and it's just blowing your mind. It's throwing you off. How do you respond? It's, how do you, you can't make it contextual to yourself. It, it's, it's really an intellectual challenge, but we're just used to it. We, it doesn't bother us anymore, because we're like, oh, that's great. We have access to everything in the world, as you're supposed to. So great, every possible idea, every thought by man is available to us. Great. This is not helpful. This does not help us think in any way. It's wonderful, it's amazing, I'm, I'm totally for it. But as far as trying to be organized, narrow, and have access to the truth, because I can guarantee you, any great thinker you find, you can find a great thinker who said exactly the opposite. And then somebody who said something so totally different, it makes it seem incomprehensible. Right? And, then just, and you can just do this forever. And so you're like, wow. Then how do we build from this mess Liberty, yay. Access to world concepts, yay. But total confusion, hmm. Um, and that's going to be the subject of our next talk, which is uh, titled Nihilism? Question mark. Is this nihilism, I think? Yeah, is this nihilism? Question mark. Um, yeah, so there's truth for you, question mark. Um, and next time we'll talk about is this actually just nihilism? Thank you very much.